Joe Aaron, who's a professor of medicine at the University of North Carolina, uh, will take us through um, investigational drugs and kind of new directions in, uh, in HIV treatment. Joe. Um, great. Thanks, um, Paul. It's really terrific to be in Chicago. It's such a wonderful place. And you guys have such terrific energy. I'm really impressed. Um, so here we go. Um, these are my uh, disclosures. Give you a chance to take a look. Um, and here's our learning objectives for today. It's in your packet too. Um, so here's the outline of the talk. First, to talk about new agents for initial therapy. There's not a lot, but there's some. Uh, then talk about new strategies. So, so not necessarily new drugs, but new strategies. Uh, talk about novel agents for resistant viruses. And then finally, some of the new agents that are in early development that'll build a little bit on some of the things that Tim uh, so nicely discussed earlier. So this is a polling question. I wanna just see where your head's at, basically. Um, so the idea here is if you have a typical patient who's treatment naive, okay? Um, no qualifications, is B5701 negative, doesn't have hepatitis B, what do you pick? Somber music. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, better. I think, I think we're close. Yeah. Wow. Very, very interesting. So, so um, as Tim mentioned, Bictegravir uh, uh, TAF FTC is the newest kid on the block, and it sounds like that new kid on the block is uh, um, uh, the most popular, um, uh, though obviously dalutegravir-based regimens still are the majority because, uh, well, slightly less than the majority, but uh, 26 and 22 percent, and, and L-vitegravir much less likely. So um, we'll, I think, have a lot of chance to discuss this during Mike's uh, case discussion, uh, but I, I, I like to get the feel. So. What, what is really needed for, for initial therapy? Why do we want to even talk about new drugs? We have safe, convenient, unboosted integrase therapy. Now we have a single tablet integrase. Well, maybe we need alternatives to integrase-based therapy. Um, there's, uh, there's NNRTI-based therapy, um, Favrin's um, now available in a generic. Even a 400 milligram generic is now available, maybe some less side effects. Um, but maybe we need one with better tolerability or less resistance and, and fewer uh, dosing restrictions. And PI-based therapy, um, uh, we could use something maybe that's more convenient. And, and if there were uh, fewer drug-drug interactions. And then when we talk about strategies, what if we don't need as many drugs? What if we could have two drug combinations or alternative dosing strategies? And, and sometimes the best laid plans of men, and I guess mice, um, uh, as it goes, get kind of uh, 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 go awry sometimes. And, and I think we'll talk about that a little bit uh, in the case studies. Um, so Duravarine, Duravarine is an investigational NNRTI. Um, some of the things that make it interesting are it's uh, active in vitro against some of the common uh, NNRTI mutations like K103N. Um, you can take it once a day without food. It has pretty low potential for drug-drug interactions. It's not a perpetrator of drug interactions. And there was a comparative study which is shown here 
comparing doraverine to boosted darunavir in treatment-naive patients uh, with uh, nucleosides and really showed um, that it was clearly non-inferior and actually was numerically actually slightly better. Um, more recently, uh, we've seen data comparing head-to-head -head with efavirenz. So this is doraverine uh, TDF-FTC versus efavirenz TDF-FTC. Uh, and this is randomized, double-blind, typical type protocol um, with about 360 individuals in each arm. And what you can see here, uh, with red being doraverine, green being efavirenz, that um, the uh, <clears throat> doraverine therapy was clearly uh, non-inferior. So clearly non-inferior. Um, uh, but unlike some of the studies we've seen with integrase inhibitors, if you look at non-response, so non-response here is a, a viral load greater than 50 at 48 weeks, it's in the 10 to 11% range. So that's higher than we, we've seen with uh, integrase-based therapy. So, so we need to, to think about that. Um, and, and, and if you look over on the right-hand side of the uh, slide, you can see there are um, protocol-defined virologic failures, 6% versus 3.8%. And we actually see um, NNRTI resistance in both groups. Um, so, so even though the number of NNRTI mutations is less, um, with uh, uh, Duravarine, you still see resistance with Duravarine. So keep that in your head, maybe when you're answering questions um, later. Um, and remember that it's um, sometimes that questions have little tricks in them about which is incorrect as opposed to correct. Um, and there's very similar nuke resistance. So, so it's a, a drug that um, uh, it was uh, certainly better tolerated. Here are the data on tolerability. There were uh, fewer drug-related adverse events, literally half as many drug-related adverse events and, and uh, fewer serious adverse events and fewer discontinuations due to adverse events. So, so it, it's probably better tolerated, maybe a different resistance profile, uh, no real requirement for food uh, or evening dosing. So it's an improvement, but it hasn't been compared to an, uh, an integrase inhibitor. So it's not really clear to me, and we can talk about this during the questions, exactly where we'll use this. Well, what about making PIs more convenient? Well, now there's a single tablet protease inhibitor. So this is uh, 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 darunavir, cobicistat, TAF, FTC in one pill. Uh, and this is the AMBER study that's been published, uh, 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 should be coming out in AIDS uh, very soon. And here's the first time where we saw, uh, these are treatment-naive people, uh, where we actually see a protease inhibitor making it above that 90% mark, right? We're very used to that with integrase inhibitors, right? 90%, 89%, 92%. Here's a protease inhibitor getting to that level. And you can see that the proportion that have virologic non-response uh, greater than 50 at 48 weeks is actually pretty low. And not surprisingly in this study, uh, very little resistance emergence, no emergence to, to, to protease inhibitors. And there was a single... Uh, individual that had a mixture at M184V. Um, there, there, there is a rash to darunavir, so we see a rash, but here's a single tablet protease that for those of us who use protease inhibitors as initial therapy, this will increase convenience. Um, this is already available in, in Europe um, and, and probably will be available sometime uh, this summer here in the U.S. And this is just a reminder that we've uh, in treatment-naive patients on boosted PI therapy, um, 
we've studied now thousands of patients and seen very, very little protease resistance. So, so, and obviously, darunavir with cobacistat is um, uh, uh, right along in this category of very, very little uh, uh, protease uh, inhibitor resistance. In fact, the only two on here is our, our two patients uh, that were uh, randomized to atazanavir in some uh, substantially older studies. Um, and remarkably, this pill is actually smaller than uh, Darunavir-Kobi, um, the Darunavir-Kobi tablet. I don't know how they did that, but they did. Um, <laughs> what about two drug regimens for initial therapy? Um, so this is um, something that we talked about a lot, right? When we had TDF and not TAF, and we had these issues with the back of ear, we, we, we talked a lot about nuke sparing. M maybe we don't talk about nuke sparing quite as much anymore, but um, it does make sense. I mean, um, Baba Femi Taiwo, who many of you know, who is here uh, in, in Chicago and uh, um, uh, uh, really an expert in this area, um, you know, if someone's going to be treated for 40, 50, 60, 70 years potentially, maybe we should minimize how much drug they're exposed to. Maybe there are toxicities we don't yet know about. Um, and obviously, there's the issue of cost. I mean, if a, if a true drug therapy was cheaper, then we would save, you know, uh, literally millions of dollars potentially. There have been several strategies, boosted PI plus an integrase. That basically hasn't really worked very well. I'm not going to talk about it. Boosted PI plus 3TC. I'll, I'll show some data. And then um, one combination that people are really thinking about, dolutegravir plus uh, 3TC. So, so boosted PI plus 3TC, this is the Andes study that was done in Argentina uh, by Pedro Kahn's group, uh, which was actually presented at Croy. Tim, let me present this. Thank you, Tim. Um, and it was a randomized study looking at darunavir, ritonavir, which they actually can co-formulate down there um, with 3TC versus darunavir, ritonavir with uh, 3TC plus TDF. And you can see... Basically, the, the results were very similar, and it didn't matter uh, whether there was high viral load or low viral load. So this is a strategy that will work, though I think many of us, and certainly our guidelines, have moved away from boosted PIs. So, so while it's, um, I think, an interesting uh, concept, I don't think it'll affect what we do here in the U.S. Uh, very much. On the other hand, um, uh, obviously, integrase inhibitors like dolutegravir are uh, the anchor of our first-line therapies. And this is actually from Baba Femi Taiwo and the uh, AIDS uh, Clinical Trials Group, uh, along with Triptulic from New York. And this was not a randomized study. This was a single-arm study of 120 individuals. Um, uh, about a third of them were, uh, had viral loads greater than 100,000. And uh, uh, the virologic success was about 90%. So that's, again, what we've seen across many, many studies. And, and virologic non-success or, or a viral load greater than 50 at 48 weeks, at, excuse me, at 24 weeks was, was relatively low, um, 3% uh, versus 2%, depending on the viral loads. The one caveat is, um, and, and you can see the viral loads suppress quickly, as you would expect. It obviously suppresses more quickly in people with lower uh, viral loads at baseline, which is the top line. Uh, but really, uh, people suppressed very quickly. Um, but there were a couple of virologic failures, and there was one in particular um, who, who lived um, very close to where I work and was on study at our site, um, uh, who actually developed a 184V mutation and a mutation associated with dolutegravir. What you can see on this graph, blue is the viral load, 
Um, and red is the dilutegravir concentration. So when the dilutegravir concentration is high, the viral load is low. When the dilutegravir concentration goes away, the viral load goes up. Um, and uh, that's the perfect strategy for selecting for resistance, which is what happened in this setting. So um, there, is, there are two large studies called Gemini, which are comparing dilutegravir 3TC with dilutegravir versus TDF-FTC. And it's likely that we'll see the results of these studies um, in uh, Amsterdam this summer at the IS meeting. I'm not sure of that. I don't know that for sure, but it's possible that we'll see the studies there. Um, and the early this summer, thanks. Okay, so um, if, uh, if dolutegavir 3TC compared to dolutegavir TDF-FTC is non-inferior, okay, if it meets non-inferior, uh, what is your tolerance for resistance? Like, uh, would you use it if only if there was no resistance? Maybe if there was a few cases of 3TC resistance, I would consider it because it's less drug, and you can see the other answers. So, um, uh, or the last answer is I will not use dolutegravir 3TC um, uh, as first-line therapy, no matter what this study shows. So go, go ahead and, and vote. <laughs> You guys are getting getting good at voting. Yeah, yeah. This is kind of my my feeling also. I think that that um, I think it would be best, obviously, if there was really no resistance emergence, just like we've seen in almost every other, well, actually every other dolutegravir treatment naive trial. Maybe. If there were a few M184Vs, that would probably be okay. We kind of know that those can be salvaged. Um, uh, uh, but um, I think if we see some integrase inhibitor resistance, that's a, that, I think that's a lifelong toxicity in my mind. So um, I, I, I agree with this. So what about new strategies for switch? Um, well, that single tablet protease was also looked at in a switch study. This switch study was slightly different than some of the other switch studies because this study allowed people in that had had previous virologic failure. So they had to be on a boosted PI, either atazanavir or, uh, or darunavir. Um, they could have had previous failure. In fact, they could even have PI mutations as long as they didn't have known darunavir mutations or known, um, uh, known to have failed a darunavir-based therapy. And what you can see in this study, which was actually a very large study, is that if you switch to the single tablet, um, the single tablet uh, Drunavir Kobe FTC TAF, you maintain suppression and virologic rebound uh, was very, very uncommon. In fact, about half of the people that had virologic rebound, which was very strict, two values above 50, that was a, a, a considered uh, a virologic rebound. Um, actually, half of those people actually went on to, to, to resuppress. And true virologic failure to viral loads greater than 200 was actually quite, quite uncommon. So this is a potential strategy. Uh, and this is just showing you that prior virologic failure didn't really make a difference. And then if you looked at um, uh, the number of prior ARVs used, many of the patients actually had um, <clears throat> over seven previous ARVs. You can see 200 uh, uh, in the uh, single tablet arm and 100 in the uh, uh, control arm. And, and they, we didn't see um, virologic, uh, any differences in that virologic rebound. Okay. 
Um, Tim already talked about this study, so I think I'll just skip it. Basically, it's uh, as he mentioned, if you're on a darunavir, a bacavir 3TC-based regimen, and you get randomized to switch to Bictager TAF FTC, you really have very similar outcomes. There really wasn't much in the way of difference between uh, uh, these two strategies. Um, and um, we know that it, you can switch um, from uh, to an NNRTI limited strategy. So, um, uh, and I'm not going to go into these, but there are lots of data showing that you can um, go to a boosted PI plus 3TC. You can go to uh, uh, dilutate pivoting. That was the SWORD study. And then Tim mentioned um, switching to uh, dilutate 3TC as a one potential a strategy, not certainly not FDA approved strategy, but one potential strategy for, for simplification in, in, in people who are suppressed. And, and remember in the SWORD study, those were patients that had never had uh, virologic failure. Okay, uh, what about long acting therapy? And this is long acting therapies for switch. Um, this is the LATTE2 study that looked at long acting cabotegravir and ropivirine. These are the 96 week data. These patients were um, initially suppressed on cabotegravir, which is similar to dalutegravir, plus a bacavir 3TC. Um, and if they suppressed over a 20-week period, uh, they got a little bit of ropivirine orally to make sure they tolerated it, and then they were randomized. And they were randomized to get uh, cabotegravir uh, ropivirine once every four weeks by intramuscular injection, once every eight weeks by intramuscular injection, excuse me, or continue on oral uh, cabotegravir or back or 3TC. And it was a two to two to one randomization. So over 100 people uh, got uh, injectable therapy on uh, the cabotegravir ropivirine arms. Um, and at 96 weeks, um, actually, virologic success was actually highest in the every eight week uh, injectable therapy. Uh, uh, slightly less uh, overall success uh, with the every four weeks, but um, the, 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 in the every four-week arm, there were absolutely no virologic failures. In the every eight-week arm, there were a few episodes of virologic non-response, including one individual that did develop resistance um, uh, while on treatment. So um, as you may know, there are two large studies of cabotegravir pivirine injectable uh, phase three studies that are underway. Um, and and uh, the newest study is actually testing the every eight week injectable. Uh, and probably by the end of this year, maybe at, at our CROI meeting next spring, we'll see some data from these large phase three studies. What about new therapy for resistant viruses? Well, um, there's a not a lot coming soon, um, uh, but there are a couple. One uh, is ibilizumab, which as you know, is already approved. Um, ibilizumab is a um, uh, thanks to Peter, we know that uh, Zumab means it's a humanized antibody, right? We all remember that from this morning. Um, and it binds to CD4, doesn't mess with CD4 function, but it blocks viral entry. The thing is, it's an antibody, so it's an infusion, and it's an every two-week infusion. Fostemzavir also blocks entry, but instead of binding to CD4, um, it binds to the virus and blocks attachment. Um, so uh, fastemzavir is a pill, which can be given uh, orally. Um, ibilizumab uh, is active against both CCR5 and CXCR4 using viruses. You would not expect any cross-resistance. And in order to give it, it's a 1,000 milligram loading dose and then 800 milligrams every two weeks. The infusion can be relatively brief over about 
uh, 30 minutes. Um, and we know that it works. Um, we know in a very, the smallest phase three trial I've ever heard of, um, uh, uh, 40 patients in a phase three trial. Um, but they did demonstrate that um, over a, a seven day period, uh, there was at least a half a log uh, decline uh, in over 80% of the individuals that got the loading dose. And then over time, uh, when uh, the background therapy was optimized, about half of the patients sustained suppression. And these were highly resistant patients, highly resistant patients. So it is effective, uh, but, it, but it is uh, an infusion, an every two-week infusion. And, and there you can see it's approved. Fastemzavir was studied in a similar way. This is a much larger study because um, uh, the, there needed to be more safety state data. Basically, these are highly drug-resistant patients. They had to have at least one active uh, other agent. They got either, uh, they stayed on their um, uh, baseline regimen uh, for, for seven days and got either fastemzavir or placebo and then uh, were optimized. If they didn't have any active agents, they didn't get any uh, placebo. They just got uh, the best possible therapy plus fastemzavir. So, so that's the design. And again, in this study, um, the, uh, uh, during placebo, there was a slight drop in viral load uh, in, in the patients who didn't get fastemzavir. And you can see those who did had about a 0.8 log decline in their viral load. So it's clearly an active antiretroviral. And again, if you look on the right-hand side of the slide, over time, um, many of the patients, especially those that had slightly more active, uh, had more active therapy, uh, maintained suppression. Again, this time a little bit above half. So, so this will be an active drug that we can use in patients that have multi-drug resistance, um, though it's not going to be available, um, uh, at least approved for some time as this study is ongoing. And so maybe 2019, I think, is what's planned. Well, finally, what about um, novel agents in early development? Uh, are we doing okay? Yep. Um, so this is the um, MK8591, or EFDA. And, and this is a nucleoside uh, reverse transcriptase inhibitor, as Tim said. But in addition, it blocks this translocation, this sliding of the um, RNA polymerase, um, uh, the, the reverse transcriptase along the RNA. Um, and it is remarkably potent. Uh, so the graph over on the right is the effect on viral load over a 10-day period. And you can see um, over one and a half logs of effect with a single dose. So this is not daily dosing for 10 days. This is one dose. Um, and so even one dose as little as 0.5 milligrams one time resulted in over a tenfold drop in virus over a seven-day period. So this is clearly a very potent drug. Um, and if you're very potent, then you don't need very uh, large quantities of the drug, obviously. Uh, and uh, therefore, its potential for uh, being formulated in interesting um, ways uh, maybe implants or other long-acting formulations could be very high, as, as, as many of you know, those of you um, who've thought about this, I'm sure many of our pharmacists think about long-acting therapy all the time. And um, the active metabolite has to be phosphorylated, just like other NRTI, has a half-life of somewhere around 100 hours. So not only is it super potent, um, but it has a half-life of 100 hours. Um, 
And uh, in studies of, uh, of healthy volunteers, it's thought as maybe as little as 0.25 milligrams daily could lead to HIV suppression. And it's actually being studied in a phase 2B trial with Duravarine, which I've already mentioned, and 3TC, um, because 3TC is generic, um, uh, as a three-drug therapy, daily dosing at 0.25 milligrams. Um, and it really has the potential for once weekly dosing and, and potentially maybe even once monthly dosing. And there was a study at Croy um, that um, was just a survey of patients where they asked patients, um, if there was long-acting therapy, what would you prefer? And they gave them a bunch of different choices. And it was really interesting. I would not have predicted this. That one of the choices was, you know, monthly injections. Another choice was uh, an implant every six months. And a third choice was once weekly therapy. And actually, the majority of the patients actually picked once weekly therapy. Um, I would have picked, you know, every six month implant, but but that's not what they picked. It was interesting. So so that you might um, know that the, uh, what we need is a dance partner for this drug, right? We need a, another drug at least for treatment. Now, for prevention, it's a different story. Perhaps this could work solely as prevention. And here's an example. This is in rats, but this is the concentration of the drug at various formulations given to rats over time, a single injection. And, and the, if you can't see it, the, the um, <clears throat> um, x-axis is days. So 200 days um, with a single injection, there's still exposures high enough uh, that would likely uh, be active against HIV virus. So it's pretty exciting. And Tim already showed that. Then there's a capsid inhibitor. Capsid is um, the coat of the virus. When the virus enters the cell, um, it has to uncoat in an organized way. Um, and if you interfere with that, it gets sucked into a, uh, the, um, uh, um, uh, into the kind of the, the garbage disposal of the cell. Uh, and and uh, obviously that blocks infection. So so this capsid inhibitor is being developed um, and has also very very potent activity. You can see 140 picomolar in PBMCs. So so maybe similar uh, to the um, EFDA uh, that I just showed you. Um, uh, and it's predicted to have a long half-life in the rat model, though what's challenging about it is it probably will never be orally formula formulated. So we'd have to think, how do you develop a drug that has no oral uh, formulation and has a very long half-life? So you have to think about safety and things like that. Um, okay, finally, um, uh, there's been a lot of talk about broadly neutralizing antibodies. So these are antibodies that have been essentially fished out of HIV-infected people using a very clever technique where you can actually find B cells that make antibodies um, and, and clone individual B cells uh, that make the most potent antibodies. And now there's a slew of these antibodies. I mean, the, the list on the right, is, it's probably longer now than, than when this uh, uh, slide was made. And, and Tim talked about one antibody that actually had three arms to it. Um, but the other thing to do would be to give one or two or, or three of these antibodies um, either as prevention or treatment. Um, and I, you should think of these, I think, in terms of treatment anyway, just like other drugs, but they have some real advantages um, and some disadvantages. One is a disadvantage is they, they um, would have to be given probably by infusion, at least to begin with. Um, and two, they're probably expensive to manufacture, though that manufacturing is getting cheaper. Um, 
advantage is they're, some of them are extremely potent and they can be modified to have very long half-lives. Like VRC01LS, LS is the modification in the FC segment that leads to an increased half-life. Um, that modification, the half-life of VRC01LS is probably in the area of three months. So if you had drugs with half-lives of three months, they would, could be given perhaps every six months. And I think um, uh, maybe an infusion of two antibodies or three antibodies every six months might be something that people would consider. Uh, and if they could be sub-Q infusions, maybe, maybe it would be different. But something to think about, you'll hear about these monoclonal antibodies. They're exciting, uh, but they, they are a, a ways off, I think, in terms of actually reaching uh, the, the clinic. Though, those studies, as, as Tim mentioned, are underway. Um, so uh, we've had a long, strange trip with antiviral therapy. Um, uh, some of you are old enough, certainly one person in the front row is old enough to remember AZT monotherapy and, and giving the drug every four hours where people set their alarm. Um, dual therapy with uh, zidovudine 3TC, and then that first triple therapy with, with the handful of drugs. And now, you know, we, we're in a uh, single tablet regimens. We're in what I would call the integrase era um, that started a few years ago. And perhaps, you know, in, in 2019 or 20, we'll have injectable therapy that will free some of our patients from pill taking. And then maybe by the middle of the next decade, we'll have um, monoclonal antibodies as part of our therapy. So I just want to thank you for your attention. And um, I have 16 seconds left. <laughs> Thanks, Joe. Um, questions? Bring them up. Don't be afraid to come to the microphone. Yeah, yeah. Oh. oh, here we go. Oh. Gonna have to print larger for us old people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so in, uh, in, a, in a treatment knife person who's suppressed, um, switching to dolutegravir rilpivirine. Talk about that. Yeah, sure. So uh, I think that the uh, um, dolutegravir piverine has been, uh, the SWORD studies, I think, demonstrated very clearly that if you're suppressed on an initial regimen uh, or haven't had previous virologic failure, it is a very effective therapy. Obviously, it, uh, you can't have hepatitis B because um, you're on no, aren't on any nucleosides. And then actually, the package insert is a little different than the study. It says if, if resistance to either of the two drugs is not expected, then that combination is reasonable. I, I think it um, doesn't have a super broad use, but I think it certainly there are patients that where it actually might be very helpful. Um, and, uh, and, and so I think I'm perfectly comfortable using it. So... Uh, no one exactly asked this question, but in the we saw um, the results of the um, uh, dolutegravir monotherapy, which was a disaster. Yeah. But why, if you have three TC resistance, why wouldn't you see that in? 
Yeah, so I think, uh, the, so what's the, so is dolutegravir the same as a boosted PI, for example? And and we know if you give dolutegravir with nukes in treatment-naive patients, we almost never see resistance. And the same with boosted PIs. Where it gets teased out, right, is in monotherapy. So you can give boosted PI, mono, monother, boosted PI monotherapy. We don't do that here in the U.S., um, but it's actually common in some parts of Europe. And while it's not as good, you see more um, blipping and you will see some biologic failures, you don't see PI resistance emerge. Uh, on the other hand, when we saw dolutegravir as monotherapy, there were two or three percent of individuals that developed resistance. I think in part that has to do with half-life, um, whereas if you miss doses of the Proteus inhibitor, they have relatively short half-life. Dolutegravir is a longer one. Now, why would dolutegravir plus 3TC work in someone that has 3TC resistance? I think one is those people were all suppressed. Um, and, and there was a subset of people that were suppressed for a shorter period of time in that study that Tim presented um, that actually had uh, slightly more virologic failures. I also think that we all know that 3TC and probably FTC um, has activity even in the face of M184V. It has about a persistent half-log effect. And so I think the argument is that if you have dolutegravir plus something that works, at least even partially, um, and the conditions are favorable, uh, it will work. I would not give dolutegravir 3TC to someone who had 184V and was viremic. I would not do that. Um, type of patient that you would consider switching or, or using Draverine, uh, what, what do you think about the place in our therapy that that's going to land? Yeah, I, I think that there are some people that don't tolerate integrase inhibitors. I don't think it's super common, but probably many of you who uh, are treating a lot of patients have seen kind of the CNS effects with, with integrase inhibitors. And perhaps dolutegravir has been impugned a little bit more, but I've seen it with raltegravir and elvitegravir, so that might be one. The other um, thing that's uh, being discussed is whether integrase inhibitors contribute more to weight gain. Um, there are several studies, observational, that have looked at that. So those might be people where a, a deraverine-based regimen might make some sense. So another question about um, uh, strategies. Uh, imagining that we're kind of worrying and maybe seeing some M184V with a dolutegravir 3TC, um, would rescuing with a single tab uh, TAF, FTC, uh, Kobe boosted darunavir be a reasonable option for that person? Yeah, I think that's right. I think if you had a failure that had M-Window-4-V, you could certainly rescue with the boosted PI plus uh, TAF, FTC. Probably you could rescue with dolutegravir TAF, FTC, uh, or bictegravir TAF, FTC. We don't have those data specifically, but the... Um, a uh, recent dawning study uh, that was done in developing world setting where they looked at NNRTI failures that had lots of uh, nucleoside resistance and randomized them to uh, uh, dolutegravir plus optimal nukes versus uh, lopinavir ritonavir plus optimal nukes. The dolutegravir plus optimized nukes was actually superior. Um, so probably just adding in TAF would probably work, though we, like, we don't have those data. So I don't know the answer to that question. <laughs> so the question is, what's the standard three-letter abbreviation for ibilizumab? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we don't know. Sometimes even the experts are stumped. Um, other questions? Okay. Um, antiretroviral therapy in the patient on uh, renal dialysis. Would you try uh, dolutegravir, ropivirine, 
Yeah, so so um, I think that's a very reasonable. Uh, if they if they haven't had virologic failure on an, an NRTI, I think that's reasonable. We presented a study at Croy of actually giving uh, L-vitegravir, CoV, TAF, FTC daily, and on someone on uh, people on hemodialysis. These are all people who were chronically on hemodialysis on average for seven years. They were not people that we were looking to transplant. And it turned out that appeared both safe and effective, but I do think dolutegravir ropivirine uh, would make sense in that setting. I don't think that's in the label, um, uh, so I uh, have to be careful about that. Um, I don't have any more question cards, so if anyone wants to get up the microphone, you may, uh, or uh, we will move to the panel discussion. So I, I've seen Mike Sag wandering out of the room, so let me, <laughs> let me ask the panel to come up. I, Tim. Um, Tim's going to go get Mike. Tim's going to go get Mike. Joe, join the panel. Yep, I'll join the panel. <laughs> Where's Mike? Oh. Right, right. Thank <laughs> you. 